2: Welcome to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personality shaping the stories...
1: Thanks for joining me on Special Edition. I'm Paula Dagnan. This week, illnesses at this time of the year. There's more than COVID out there. Also, the Pennsylvania Council for the Arts has a new program. We're going to start off, though, meeting Dr. Matthew Factor, thoracic surgeon and director of the Lung Cancer Screening Program at Geisinger, and he has details on that program. Dr. Matthew Factor, thank you so much for joining me today. And I've heard so much about lung cancer. Some folks that I've known, that's been unfortunately the cause of their deaths. Give us an overview on where lung cancer is right now. Again, it's so much different than it was many years ago. So how are things progressing?
3: Well, uh, first of all, thank you very much. Paula, for, uh, for having me on and, and, and having a moment to talk about lung cancer. We realize first and foremost that lung cancer naturally carries with it a big stigma um, because of its heavy association with smoking and the tendency to place blame on the person who may or may not have been a smoker Obviously, it is a huge risk factor for lung cancer. However, any one of us can get lung cancer. So if you have lungs, you can get lung cancer. And it's just been swept under the carpet for far, far too long. You'll probably remember in the early 60s that the Surgeon General of the United States declared tobacco smoking a carcinogen and and yet still a legal product today and obviously still uh, heavily prominent in our community. Having said that, we are finally making headway on screening, which is really what our topic is today. Uh, We're all familiar with with mammogram for breast and and colonoscopy for colon, prostate blood tests or physical exams, uh, pap smears for cervical cancer, and uh, even skin exams for melanoma, but yet none of them have as clear and and heavy-weighted evidence Towards the benefit of screening compared to lung cancer. Because of the scrutiny for lung cancer, it took a long time to provide uh, data uh, to that end. But getting back to your question, so lung cancer is the number one cancer killer in the United States. It's actually in the world as well, but we'll just talk about United States today. More specifically, lung cancer every year kills more people than the combination of breast colon and prostate cancers. It's number one and it kills more than the numbers two, three, and four cancers. And as I mentioned earlier, there's clearly a high risk factor, that being smoking or around here, a coal miner or somebody else in a heavy industry with lots of pollution. And yet we haven't screened for it you know, until relatively recently. But it's a, the number one killer and obviously deserves much more attention than it has received over the past. Now, as far as treatment, you're right. It's one of the deadliest cancers. Roughly 20% or fewer people survive their lung cancer diagnosis. But if it's caught early in the first or second stages, cure rates are you know much much higher than 20%. More like 70 to 90%. Not quite as good as some other cancers, but still very good. So the key is finding it earlier, and that's where screening comes in. Yes, treatment has changed significantly. Not only surgical techniques, robotic surgery like we do, highly sophisticated radiation like stereotactic radiation in the medications, chemotherapy, and now immunotherapy. And in fact, it's been very exciting in lung cancer the past maybe five or more years with the development of immunotherapies, which is medicine, just fancier, different kind of medicine using our own immune system, making incredibly significant strides in survival, even for late stage lung cancer patients.
1: When we talk about screenings, there's always a certain group of people who say, I never smoked. Why would I get lung cancer? What about people who live with smokers? You also mentioned the whole idea of pollution. I think we fit in there somewhere. That's correct. And so important
3: to move away from stigmatizing it because that won't help Anybody, of course. And literally, that has led to much fewer in the way of research dollars for lung cancer. When it is the number one cancer killer, far and above the next three, clearly we should be doing something different. And as you mentioned, it is not all about smoking. And we have a tendency to, oh, you have lung cancer. Did you smoke? And again, it's still, you know, 80 to 90% of folks with lung cancer have a smoking history or Secondhand smoking history. And then, of course, you know, maybe in their workplace, whether it's a previously heavy smoking bar, mentioned coal mining or any other industry where there's heavy pollution, even that big black puff of smoke behind the semi truck or somebody's jacked up pickup truck, they squirt out that big black heavy smoke. That ain't good for our lungs. Our lungs are air filters for us. And, you know, every time we inhale that ugly stuff, even being too close to a bonfire, you know, for too long, just imagine what's going on inside the lungs being hit with that sort of pollution, if you will. So we are all at risk. And just like any cancer, it really only takes one cell, one bad actor, one bad transaction as the cells divide and and reproduce. If one of them is a rogue cell, that's the beginning of cancer. And quite frankly, it's a miracle that one would go through life and never have a cancer. You know, never have one error in a cell that somehow, you know, led to a cancer. Not all errors in cell reproduction lead to cancer because our body has ways of defeating the rogue cells. But if it's, you know, truly, truly a rogue rogue, it'll survive and and become a cancer.
1: That's why I wanted you to reemphasize that because I didn't want anybody who heard us talk about lung cancer immediately say, oh, that doesn't apply to me. And then miss out on the information that you're going to tell us as far as screening is concerned. And how exciting is this? Because again, mammograms every year, colonoscopies every so many years. Is it going to be the same thing with lung cancer screening now?
3: It is a little bit different. And I will just preface that by saying it's a little bit unfortunate because it's going to come off
1: as sounding a little bit complicated compared to what you just mentioned. Because the first thing that comes to my mind is in all of those, do you have a family history? So now here we are with lung cancer. Does the same question get asked?
3: yes, the the same question gets asked, and right now, a family history of lung cancer is not an eligibility criteria.
1: That's something a little bit different. So, who would be criteria then?
3: It is currently based solely upon being or having been a smoker. So, in other words, the highest risk group, you know, generalizing it across a population. So a smoker, now, if you quit more than fifteen years ago, no longer eligible. Yes, the risks do go down over time, but many of us would argue if you've ever been a smoker, you should be eligible. And then the current ages uh, as of this year are from age 50 to 80 and what we consider to be a heavy smoker. And this this is a little bit odd, but the way we calculate that, and it's very rough to make it a perfect calculation, but we use what are called pack years so 30 or more pack years of smoking history is what has traditionally qualified, but as of this year, it's now down to 20. Here's what I mean. If you smoke one pack a day and you've smoked for 20 years, that's one pack times 20 years equals 20 pack years. If you smoke half a pack a day times 20 years, that would be 10 pack years and not eligible for Screening. Yes, it sounds a little complicated and odd, but those are the highest risk people. Don't forget there are harms to doing screening. So we or those who are setting these policies are trying to keep it safe as well. So anyway, 50 to 80, at least a 20 pack year smoking history and active smoking or has have smoked within the last
1: 15 years. It's really those three items right there. So what is the screening then? Because you can take a chest X-ray if you think that you might have pneumonia. How is the lung cancer screening going to work then?
3: So we use what is referred to as a CAT or CT scan. So this is an x-ray, been around for a long time, specifically a low-dose CT, much less than the standard CT scan radiation. CT or CAT just stands for computer-assisted tomography. Very, very easy, simple for the person. So there's no IV, there's nothing to drink. You do not have to get undressed. Get on the little table, and there's a huge donut wide open it's not an mri it's not closed in and it is i don't know it's a minute maybe or less or a slightly more than that the machines nowadays talking about modernization are very fast very efficient and very high quality so it turns out they need less radiation to get us a good picture if we really really need high detail well, then that could always be followed up with a more sophisticated version, for example. But for screening, just like a mammogram, you kind of need a a general picture. And uh, But it's incredible what these scans can look like. Again, they're not new. They're just sort of being applied here. They're much, much better than a chest x-ray because of the level of detail. And very, very simple and easy. And then When it's done, just like a mammogram, the radiologist, assuming it's being read by a qualified radiologist sort of trained in this screening technique, there is a very simple scoring system that they use to let us know, are we worried? Are we not worried? And is there anything else you know, extraneous? Did we accidentally find some other problem? Keep in mind, it's a picture of the chest. So, of course, it's the lungs. That's what we're talking about today. But it's the bones. It's the heart, a little bit of the liver, some stomach, maybe tops of the kidneys, a little bit of the spleen, thyroid may be included every once in a while. Not often, but we'll pick up something entirely different. Maybe an aneurysm that we catch before it ruptures or... Uh, severe emphysema, or a thyroid nodule. So anyway, it's a, a basic, basic picture. And I will say that speaking of those who are at risk, heavy smokers, don't forget, they're also at risk for heart disease and other lung disease like emphysema, which I just mentioned. So cancer, heart disease, and other lung disease all kind of picked up on one and the CT scan. The goal, of course, is picking up the lung cancer, but turns out if there is something else seriously wrong, we may be able to discover that as well.
1: I don't think anybody, Dr. Factor, is sitting there going, oh, that's me. Yeah, I think I I better go. No, I think they're going to have to wait until something spurs them in your direction. What would some of the symptoms be? Or their doctor might even notice it before them.
3: Here's the scary thing. Lung cancer is a silent killer, silent disease. So we cannot feel our lungs. Obviously, we can't feel our colon either. So you rely on the colonoscopy or we might be able to feel lump in a breast, of course. For lung cancer, there are symptoms. It usually means the disease is in at least the middle stage, if not later. So of course, you could have a cost or worse, maybe coughing up blood. But that would be a sign of a bit more serious tumor. But yes, anything wrong with our lungs, you know, naturally could give you a little cough. But it's not all that common to have a cough before the diagnosis, unless it's in the late stages. Shortness of breath, really uncommon because it takes a lot to make us short of breath. A significant amount of lung needs to be blocked, if you will, to to not be functioning and then give you shortness of breath um of course cancers in general might make you fatigued you know slowing down a little bit you know losing weight now these would be significant and worrisome signs that it's a more involved disease hoarseness uh, not having a strong voice maybe over a few weeks you develop hoarseness i'm sure you're familiar with peter jennings who was the the news anchor for abc forever Right. and when he announced that he had lung cancer he had a hoarse voice and i knew nothing of his case of course but i knew i don't remember what when that was in my career or training but i knew oh gosh that's not good news that would be uh, lymph nodes involved uh, in the left chest and they have attacked the the left side of the vocal cord it's a it's a strange anatomy thing and how we're built but uh, anyone who's in this knows lung cancer and then hoarseness, uh uh-oh, that's advanced, at least, uh, you know, spreading within the chest harder to treat. So symptoms are actually kind of late signs of the disease. So we can't rely upon those. Of course, that deserves attention if any of those things do come up. And notice some of them are fairly vague. So it can be hard just because, uh, you know, you're losing weight or something. It could be all kinds of reasons, not just cancer. So it can be hard to pinpoint um, and and not a reliable way to figure out if you're not going to just wait for symptoms and then get attention. In other words, if we know you're at risk.
1: Ed Geisinger, you have this particular way of screening. Has it been used already? And what has uh, what have some of the responses been? The first thing I'd like to say about that is that lung screening, lung cancer
3: screening is a process and not just a test. And that's really, really important because Obviously, safety is the number one concern. And guess what? Healthcare is very complicated and it's not perfect and there can be harms. We, we all know that and probably all have examples of when things didn't quite go well. So it's a process. That CT scan is sort of the test that kicks it all off, if you will. And hopefully someday we'll have better things, maybe a more specific blood test. And we ain't there yet. We're working on it. Lots of ideas. Trust me. There's huge money to be made in those kinds of things. If you're a you know lab company or pharmaceutical or something like that, so a lot of people are trying real hard to find those things. And we work with a lot of them, uh, those that are credible and have good ideas to try to help uh, find that. But for now, it's that CT scan. And by that, by the process, what I mean is the team around that, because you need. Obviously, the qualified radiologist to read it properly. And, you know, any good radiologist can read a CAT scan, but we want dedicated chest radiologists and those who are familiar with this scoring system. And then what do we do with those results? How do we manage those results? Well, there are guidelines. That scoring system I mentioned, which is a simple one, two, three, four system, Whatever the the number is, you know, however scary the scan may look, the evidence tells us what we should do next. For example, if it's kind of a tiny little finding, it might be as simple as, okay, see you next year, we'll keep an eye on that, you know, similar to a mammogram with a very minor finding or a colonoscopy with a minor polyp that's not risky, you know, see you the next time. Um, Or maybe it's an in-between sized nodule, something like that, a spot in the lung, but not very big, maybe we're going to do another scan within three months or six months to recheck on it. Because it's not so easy to biopsy the lung, as you can imagine. So we're not always just reacting to whatever we find immediately. So it takes a team around that to know, okay, here's the result, and then here's what we should do based upon evidence. And there's it starts out with a very simple chart, almost like a cookbook as to what to do is the next step. But there are lots of nuances and healthcare is complex. So we have a whole team behind that that analyzes the results and works on the next steps. And of course, a, a comprehensive healthcare system like Geisinger, we have all of those next steps. We're not outsourcing anything to somewhere else. It's all within the house, if you will. And then that allows us to see our quality and, and we can feed back the data to ourselves. If we're noticing that there are you know, weaknesses in the process, uh, we can shore those up. And so, yes, this has been going on for quite some time. It's kind of an interesting story. Um, it, it has only relatively recently been covered by insurance. So, Specifically, 2015 is when Medicare started paying for um, the screen. I'm glad you and brought that up. Unfortunately, <laughs> that was okay. my, that was a question yeah.
1: that was coming next. <laughs> sure.
3: And again, as I mentioned, with the, the screening criteria, uh, you know, talking about the payment for it, it, it gets a little bit complex. Unfortunately, so Medicare actually said age 55. And, but up to 77. So they decided to go a little lower than 80, but, but let's not worry about that because the, the U.S. preventative services task force, that's kind of the task force that gives us these guidelines for breast screening, colon screening, et cetera, et cetera. It's not a political group, but an advisory group for the government and Medicare and, and all of us. So anyway, up to age 80. And so Medicare did start paying for it and under the Affordable Care Act, these kinds of screening tests, including mammography and colonoscopy, as long as they are approved by the the task force I mentioned, all insurers are required, all private insurers are required to pay for this without any copay. Now, having said that, insurance is very complicated in this country. I don't understand very much of it, but I do know that there are lots of ways they can get around. Yeah, these insurance companies have lots of ways of getting around it or their grandfather clause in that they can somehow they get around it. Medicare gets to decide for themselves, but within a year of a task force decision, the private insurers are supposed to be paying for it. And so, yes, it has been covered now for a little while. This year, the task force widened the eligibility so it, like i mentioned earlier it's ages 50 to 80 it was 55 to 80 so it's down to age 50 and down to 20 pack years as opposed to 30 pack years by the way 30 pack years that's a 20 cigarettes in a pack and you know do the math it's over 200,000 cigarettes 30 pack years is like 216,000 Cigarettes or something like that that somebody has smoked in their lifetime. Wow. So, anyway, it is covered, uh, but not for everybody, like I said, because insurance is so complicated. However, before it was well covered, many of the major institutions would offer the screening for free, the CT scan. The CT scan is relatively inexpensive, you know, compared to many other things that we do. Um, but knowing that. Abnormal findings were so common, relatively speaking, on these CAT scans, whether it's a lung nodule or something else, it usually leads to finding other things uh, in at least some percentage of people. And so for a big healthcare system, they can absorb the cost sometimes of these uh, initial CT scans, you know, because it's the right thing to do. And, and ultimately things sort of have a way of working out as far as financially. They find ways to to make it work or have grants and things like that. Yes, we've been doing it. We do thousands a year. In the last little bit over a year, we have made it a completely comprehensive and centralized screening program so that we can ensure the highest quality and safety possible. Um, there are a few ways of of doing it like anything in life. Definitely seen many cancers found on screening. Many of them are early stage. So me as a lung cancer surgeon, early stage lung cancer is often treated with surgery. That's the most effective treatment for early stage lung cancer. Not everybody can tolerate lung surgery, however, so we work very closely with our radiation colleagues because sometimes pinpoint, specialized, easy-to-tolerate radiation is the better choice. And then in some exceptional cases, there's even a way to burn or freeze the tumor with the help of our friends in radiology, interventional radiology. So there's a little bit of a spectrum of treatment options. And yes, we are already seeing this uh, come to life as far as finding Cancers. What's very interesting, to give you an example, is there are two major classes of lung cancer. One is called small cell lung cancer, and the other is called non-small cell lung cancer. And I apologize. I know you would think I was going to say large there for a second, but instead it's non-small cell. Yes, large cell is one type of non-small cell. But anyway, small cell is very aggressive, And we usually find it late. It spreads like wildfire in the body, basically. Well, interestingly, with screening, we are uh, noticing, and it's early, but that we are finding a bit more small cell lung cancer before it has spread. It's just in one single spot. And um, that's unusual to find it that early, although it's possible. So literally 2021 alone, we have operated on four different people with small cell lung cancer, when normally that's like once every five years maybe you'd operate on somebody with small cells because it's, it's not usually caught so early. Just an interesting kind of phenomenon, but a reflection of how screening can save lives.
1: Dr. Factor, we could go on because you find all these things and it could go in so many directions. That's the whole thing about medicine. You just never know what direction it's going in. So, Dr. Factor, if you would like to leave our listeners with one thought about the screenings, the lung cancer in general, what would they be? Please
3: talk with your doctor. If you have any questions or any doubts about this, just ask your doctor for the best advice.
1: Thanks once again to Dr. Matthew Factor, Thoracic Surgeon and Director of the Lung Cancer Screening Program at Geisinger. Don't go away. The Pennsylvania Council for the Arts and their new program next on Special Edition. Next on Special Edition, Odyssey's Nikki Stone catches up with Nora Johnson from the Pennsylvania Council for the Arts. She has details on the Creative Entrepreneur
2: Accelerator Program. I have met so many creative people, and I know so many talented people in Northeast PA who may be stuck on the next step. And I believe that is where this um, Creative Entrepreneur Accelerator Program in the state of PA can step in and help, plus a grant for possibly $2000 and to tell us about becoming eligible for that grant we have Nora Johnson she is the um she's with the Pennsylvania Council of the Arts um good morning how are you Nora I'm doing well, Nikki. How are you? I am thrilled to have you on the phone this morning. I love embracing creativity, celebrating talents, and when I saw this come up in Pennsylvania news, I uh, was—we got to be—we got to get on it. We have to talk about this. So, oh, we're
4: so excited for your interest and to tell you more about the uh, Creative entrepreneur, entrepreneur Accelerator
2: Program. Okay, so, what kind of services are offered through that program?
4: So the goal of the program is to connect creative entrepreneurs, and we can go into the definition of what I mean by that, with existing free uh, small business consulting resources in their community and with uh, the opportunity to receive um, small grant funding to support the growth and enhancement of their business.
2: So when you're talking about... um um, that, that what fits in that category, all right? What kind, what kind of businesses can we expect to see pop out of this program?
4: Sure. So, um, and this is a program that is eligible to anyone who is 18 years of age and a current Pennsylvania resident, um, a creative uh, entrepreneur's business, Um, must have gross revenue less than $200,000. You can also be somebody who is trying to form a business, so you don't have to be an existing for-profit business. And then um, work that falls under the category of creative entrepreneurship um, through this program includes marketing, architecture, visual arts and crafts, design, film and media, digital games, music and entertainment, and publishing. So it is really broad. and very broad. To, yeah, we're trying to illustrate, you know, we're trying to encourage as many folks who are working within these fields already or um, trying to get a business off the ground uh, to um, be aware and take advantage of business consulting so they can grow their businesses and, um, you know, have a, a thriving uh, ability to make a living and to contribute to their community and help make their communities um, vibrant places uh, for people to live and work and visit.
2: When I look at some of the the categories, too, you also have digital games, music and entertainment included in there, uh, which mm-hmm. really, I mean, it's a very big area. Where I get confused is, though, uh, on when you talk about this, how will some of these benefit low-income areas? How can they benefit low-income areas? Um, some examples of how they would be be doing something like that.
4: When we're talking about uh, determination of um, prioritization, that we believe that businesses can contribute to their communities. It's, so communities across Pennsylvania, whether it's tiny. Uh, whether it's low income, whether it's, whether it's already thriving. Um, these are pe- places that people want to be able to live, to raise their families, to work, to make a living and to exist and to enjoy life. And um, if you are able to access funding to help you grow your business in your community, you are investing in your community, you're paying taxes in your community, you're, um, you know, going out to dinner in your community, you're sending your, your kids to school in your community. There's all kinds of ways that you're um, investing in your community by being, um, you know, a, a person who is making a living through your creative entrepreneurship.
2: Okay. So these now- are, It's not just about, yeah, that makes more sense. That does make more sense because I'm thinking, do you have to be able to hire people? Are you supposed to be offering some services that people can become involved? That's what I wasn't wasn't sure about, you know? Um, Oh, sure. And those are certainly other, you know, beneficial components of
4: small businesses and communities. But it's really um, the ability to start or grow your business and to start making a living off of your business, hopefully, um, that we see as a real benefit to communities. Um, we believe at the Council on the Arts that um, the creative sector is an invaluable piece of um, how Pennsylvania communities have been and continue to be great places for people to live and to work and to visit. And, um, and we believe that the arts and the creative sector play a key role in that. So that's, uh, that's a big part of what this is about.
2: Now, has this been us. done in the past? Has anything like this been done in the past?
4: So um, not the pairing. To our knowledge, uh, we have not seen a program that pairs both business consulting and um, small grants to creative entrepreneurs. So there's a, a, the Colorado Creative Industries which is um, an arts agency out in Colorado, obviously. Um, They had a program where they were giving small grants to creative entrepreneurs. There are um, folks around Pennsylvania, um, in PA, Weld, um, out in Pittsburgh, etc., who are uh, offering a variety of very valuable business consultation programs for creative entrepreneurs. But, we, but this one um, kind of tries to do both.
2: Um, so I think that's. Yeah, kind I of think a lot of thing. times when somebody has a talent or cre- some sort of creativity, now architecture is one thing. I grew up the daughter of. Um, an architectural engineer, um, that's one thing that you can make a, a huge career out of it. But when it comes to other arts, some people just look at them as their ho- their hobby, dreaming that they can make it into a business, dreaming that they can, they can grow it, but don't know how to take the steps in order to do that. Mm-hmm. And so that's think- where the Small Business Associ- um, Administration comes in to help.
4: The Pennsylvania Council on the Arts is a state agency. Uh, We're located in Harrisburg. We're under the governor's office. We have 14 regional partner organizations around the state um, that help us administer and regrant some of our funding. So the first step uh, for folks who are interested in taking advantage of the Creative Entrepreneur Accelerator Program is for somebody to hop on our website at arts.pa.gov And then we have a link to the Creative Entrepreneur Accelerator Program page, and they can find uh, information on how to get in touch with their Pennsylvania Partner in the Arts regional partner organization.
2: Now, you're in Luzerne County, is that correct? Well, um, the station's in Luzerne County, but we serve uh, Luzerne, Lake Alana, Wyoming, uh, Columbia, the northeast region of Pennsylvania.
4: Okay, our partner, re- our partner organization for most of the, those counties is the Northeastern Educational Intermediate Unit 19, and then the Community Giving Foundation also services some of the counties. So. The easiest thing to do is for people to go to our website and find the list of partner organizations and see what county services their, um, see what organization services their county, their area. Yeah, and when you get in touch with your with that partner organization, they will connect you with small business development center or small business consulting resources uh, specific to where you're located. Those folks will help with business consultation, business plan review, et cetera. And once uh, a creative entrepreneur goes through that business consultation process, then they're eligible for um, a grant up to $2,000 to um, grow or start
2: their business. So, What kind of businesses are you expecting to see come out, like, to, to um, go into looking for these grants and, and the extra help? It's not just architectural. It's not just marketing. Um, what other, t- I mean, I see a lot of crafters, a lot of you know people that work with wood, people that make jewelry, people that... Do so yep. many different things. Is it limited yes. that if you are crocheting at home, you're not eligible? You no, know, it's more about um, no, 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 not at all. So
4: um, you know we have those broad categories, and then there are a number of disciplines listed under each of those. So, for example, visual arts and crafts, we have galleries, artists, artisans, and makers under that. You do not have to be somebody who is making a living off of your art or your creative. Uh, entrepreneurship discipline at the moment. This is part of what we're trying to do is help people connect with resources to learn how they can establish a business and then make a living off of that business, hopefully, or at least generate uh, income off of it. Now, um, we cap the uh, eligibility limit at gross revenue of less than $200,000. So we don't have a minimum amount that people need to be... That that people have to be earning already in order to be eligible, right? Uh, And so it's more about uh, you know, have you? Can you demonstrate um, that you're already engaging in a creative discipline of some sort? And then um, that you, when you work with the small business development coordinators, um, they'll be looking to help you develop either a business plan, a basic business plan, maybe help you develop a pitch, help you look over um, the various sort of business models and competitive nature in your region. So basically um, the idea is, are you already doing something uh, that is under the creative disciplines um, as an individual or as a very, very small business? And are you interested in engaging with consultation to try to create a viable business
2: essentially? That makes that does definitely make sense and I think it will help many people, especially those who've been dreaming of and I think out of COVID, uh one mm-hmm. good thing that came about is people got to explore their talents a little bit more and mm-hmm. and think a little bit more about doing something maybe for themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, but then they get stuck Thinking they can't, they don't know how to start, and this program is just the a, a wonderful way to kick yourself in gear and get yourself get yourself moving on um, maybe living that dream that you didn't think you can you could do. And it doesn't hurt to talk to maybe you sit down and make the business plan, and then you decide. Eh, this seems like not, I don't I don't really. It doesn't hurt to talk to somebody to decide whether you can or you can't.
4: That's like, exactly right, like, Nikki. Don't and, jump right um, to know, Eligible uses for um, the grant money are, are pretty broad. And, and part of what we're trying to do is address that stigma that I think a lot of people still have um, that, you know, maybe I'm not, I don't know, maybe I have not created like a substantial enough um, business, or maybe I, I can't make a living at this, or whatever the thing is in your head that says like maybe you. You know, maybe you shouldn't pursue um, this creative dream you have or or something that you're already working
2: on. And there might be some, you know, and maybe some businesses that did start like before COVID and that Mm -hmm. COVID might have held up a little. And now their Mm -hmm. business plan is looking a little bit different and they don't know how to get on to the next level um, to move themselves forward because they were moved backwards a bit um, by the whole pandemic. Um, This getting some resources, people people that you can talk to to help you go on to that next level is always helpful as well.
4: I think that's entirely correct. And, you know, we want people to know that these existing resources are there uh, to take advantage of. You know, I think sometimes people feel like, well, maybe that's not for me. Maybe the Small Business Development Center or whatever the organization is um, only wants to talk to me if I want to start like, a, don't know, like a a storefront business or something that's like, um, you know, like a, a, a really sort of elaborate uh, traditional business venture. But these are resources that exist for small businesses and, and entrepreneurs of all
2: sizes and, and disciplines. He even so, wants to think outside the box. Yeah. <laughs> even yep, wants, exactly. you know, and I have to, i forgive me, but I didn't even know we had a Pennsylvania Council on the Arts, and I'm one of those artsy writer type of people, you know, <laughs> and no clue. I do, and when I was in high school, interviewed with the Governor's School of the Arts at least twice. So oh, wow. I, I interviewed, never got in, but I interviewed, which is an honor from what I Understand? <laughs> yes, that is significant. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. Th- yeah. Th- does our Governor's School of the Arts still exist?
4: Um, I do not believe it does any longer. Unfortunately, yeah. but, um, but, but, police... but um, the yeah, the Council on the Arts has been around for um uh, about fifty-five years at this point. We're under the governor's office, and um, we you know this creative entrepreneur accelerator. Uh, program is just one of the things that we offer to creative entrepreneurs, to the creative sector, to nonprofits, et cetera. So um, the entrepreneur program is for specifically people that are looking to set up a for-profit business. But we give out um, you know a multitude of grants to, uh, to support arts and education, to support um, any number of disciplines in the arts. Uh, museums, uh, all sorts of institutions and
2: organizations across Pennsylvania. Well, it's well worth checking out for the new entrepreneurs, the Creative Craft Entrepreneurs. Uh, yeah. it is the, uh, they are online, arts.pa.gov. Arts.pa.gov. You'll get the information you need about the... So when I go in here and I click on Creative Entrepreneur Acceleration, program. Mm-hmm. It would click right on there. The apply for, I wouldn't do the apply for a grant yet until maybe I talk to a few people and then you apply for the grant. So what you do is
4: you connect with um, the regional partner organization in, in your area and then they will guide you to small business consultation. After you go through the business consultation process, then you are eligible for uh, financial resources up to $2,000. So that's
2: the sort of process there. So just do that arts.pa.gov and click on that Creative Entrepreneur Accelerator Program to learn more. Nora Johnson, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to discuss this with uh, the crafty and talented people of Northeast PA. We are thrilled to
4: have your interest. Thank you, Nikki.
2: Thanks again to Odyssey's Nikki
1: Stone and Nora Johnson from the Pennsylvania Council for the Arts. Now don't go away. They're are more illnesses at this time of the year than just COVID. We'll talk about those next on Special Edition. Welcome back to Special Edition. Once again, so many people concerned about COVID, but there are still other illnesses that usually crop up at this time of the year. To tell us about those, Dawn Webster, Advanced Practice Clinician Director with MedExpress. Don Webster back with us again. Don, I, I don't envy you at all being in the medical profession, especially at this time of the year, because there are so many and now with all these other things that are coming, but we still deal with all of those that we are used to every time this time of the year arrives. Where do we start?
0: You're right. There are so many things right now. The flu. There's COVID regular run-of-the-mill cold, there's strep throat, ear infections, upper respiratory infections, sinusitis, bronchitis.
1: So many of these have overlapping symptoms, but how do you even know what you're going to be calling your doctor or stopping by to see you at MedExpress and say, I think I have... The one thing I would say that it's very important and really helps differentiate
0: signs and symptoms from one illness to another is a fever. So not many cold viruses cause a fever. The flu often does cause a fever. COVID can sometimes cause a fever, but the -the run-of-the-mill cold typically does not. Sore throat, runny nose, coughs, headaches, you're pretty much going to get those with any cold, any flu, potentially COVID. If you have those, and you start running a fever, that's a sign it may be something a little bit more serious. So that's the first thing to look for. The second thing you want to look for is you want to look at how long you've had these symptoms. So if it's been a day, if it's been two days, no need for concern yet. You can try the -the over-the-counter medicine, get lots of rest, drink chicken noodle soup, take care of yourself, stay home, give your body time to feel better. If it starts lasting longer than four, five days, Then you start to worry about some other things. Are you getting dehydrated? Are you running a fever? You have to look at the duration of symptoms, which means how long they're lasting. You also have to look at whether or not they're coming with a fever. And then you have to start looking at some other symptoms. So typically by that time, it's going to kind of morph. If it's an ear infection, you're going to start having pain and pressure in your ears. If it's strep throat, it's going to really focus in on that throat pain. The first couple of days of all of these, you may feel the same. Achy, headache, cough, runny nose. After a couple of days, you want to look for the fever and you want to see where those symptoms are kind of focusing in on.
1: If you've had those kind of things before, is that maybe giving you a better heads up as to what is exactly going on in your body? Yes. Absolutely. So people that get strep throat every year,
0: and it's not very
1: common in adults, but it is more common in kids.
0: So if someone's child gets strep throat every year, they may come in and say, he's only had a sore throat for a day, he already has a fever, and he has his breath smells like strep. So obviously if someone is a parent and they've never had a child with strep before, they're not going to know what that means. But if that little boy gets strep every year and every year that mom or dad smells it on their breath and they get diagnosed with it, that's a good indication. Same with ear infections. Someone has a two year old. He didn't sleep last night. He's been pulling on that ear all night. He has a fever. This is how he always starts with his ear infections. And, And parents know their kids too. I mean, We always listen to parents. If if that's how they typically start, then we would never say, oh, it's not an ear infection. We're not going to look in his ears. Typically, parents are right.
1: Another one of those things, especially with kids, is that barky kind of cough.
0: The barky cough, the seal like cough is what we call it, is a hallmark of, of croup. Croup is also a viral infection which means, unfortunately, antibiotics aren't going to help it. But the most important thing with croup is comfort. So unfortunately, that barky cough gets worse at night. The child's not sleeping, they're barking, they're keeping up their parents, their siblings, they're miserable. A lot of times they're fine during the day. It's not till bedtime that that cough really kicks in and and just makes everyone miserable. So some of the things you can do to help that, go in the bathroom, run a, a hot shower, sit in the bathroom, let that steam help. The steam's going to really help. The other thing that we recommend is actually going outside. Put a coat on the kid, take them outside, let them breathe in that cool, moist air. So those are two things that help a ton with the
1: symptoms. I know fever is one of them, but are there other really key signs that say, I need to make a phone call, I need to make an appointment, I need to go see somebody?
0: We talked about earlier, you definitely want to look at the fever. If it's a low fever, if it goes away with Tylenol or Motrin, you can probably sit on it for a couple of days. But if you start to feel weak or dizzy, or you do start to throw up and, and you can't keep liquids down, then you have to worry about dehydration. And that's a whole nother issue. So those are all warning signs. If it's just a cough, the runny nose, the headache, the aches, if it lasts longer than five or six days, you're going to want to get checked.
1: You get to the doctor and you say, well, why aren't you putting me on an antibiotic? So viruses, like the flu, like COVID, those are not going to be fixed with
0: antibiotics. However, if you do have influenza the seasonal flu. there are antiviral medications that your doctor may prescribe depending on your risk factors your age all sorts of things how bad your symptoms are and then there's also always symptomatic relief so if you have a terrible cough they can give you a cough medicine if you have sinus pressure or a runny nose so we always look at the symptomatic relief also but really one of the best things to do is just kind of rest take it easy and let your body heal
1: Thanks once again to Advanced Practice Clinician Director Don Webster with MedExpress for joining us on Special Edition.
2: Thanks for listening to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories.